again, everybody. Uh, thanks again for joining us and thanks again for singing along and dancing along and participating in our service. We're in the middle of a series, When a Child Asks. It's been truly an incredible series and that's due in part because of all of you submitting some great questions. You know, why are things hard right now? Why do we call God He? And today we're going to be covering a, a question that was, again, submitted by all of you. What was there before God? And I'm going to take a cue from uh, my good friend and pastor, Pastor Omer, and just simply answer nothing. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs> well, of course, I, um, in accordance with Pastor Omer, want to do everything that I can do to simply honor and respect the question that was um, that has been submitted. Um, let me start with this question by saying nothing, but also just confessing in some ways that I don't really think I know. And I'm not sure actually if I'm actually going to be able to answer the question or address the question with um, a level of confidence or a level of robustness that's going to be satisfactory. I'd like to, I guess, confess up at the very top my inadequacy for answering questions such as this. Um, it's a feeling, by the way, that is growing in me virtually every day that I live, uh, which reminds me of this particular meme. And of course, everything comes back to the Princess Bride. Just get used to disappointment because that's what is going to happen. I'd also like to acknowledge that questions like this can sometimes be difficult depending upon where you're coming from. And whenever I get questions like this, I usually want to ask where are you coming from? What uh, what kind of background or what is the why behind the question that you're asking? So I can understand a little bit better and try to meet somebody where uh, they're at. But I do recognize that for some people, this is going to be like, oh, uh, seriously? I mean, I have children I need to feed. I have school I need to take care of. I have work I have to take care of. Do we really need to go into all the pontifications of great uh, metaphysical philosophy and all that kind of stuff? And um I just want to acknowledge that that sentiment is out there and that feeling can come with questions like this. We are human beings that are facing very real issues on the everyday level. And sometimes it can feel like a certain level of privilege or a certain level of scholarly leisure, like, oh great, congratulations, you have enough time to ponder questions such as, what was there before God? So before I even get to the thoughts as to how we could address this question, I thought I would address some of that stuff that comes even before we address the question. For example, the question, what was there before God, seems to lead into these grand, big questions that we have about the universe and our place within it. And that question and that be beginning of checking out or interrogating or pursuing with curiosity our place within the universe, is actually very much part of our biblical story. Consider Psalm chapter 8, verse 34. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? The wisdom literature that we have in our text actually cares deeply about our place within the universe and looks to the stars, looks to the moon, uh, looks to the heavens to try to answer that question and to give us a sense of perspective that could give us a sense of wisdom and grounding. One of the most uh, powerful 
books in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures is that book of Job that discusses exactly this question when God comes and answers Job in his dilemma of why are all of these horrible tragedies happening. And this is just a very small segment of a vast piece of literature in the book of Job where God essentially asks Job, can you tie the bands of the Pleiades or loose Orion's reins? These are, of course, constellations in the sky. Can you bring constellations out in their season, lead the great bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you fix their rule on earth? And the question about can you actually answer this question? Can you get to the, the, the construction and the architecture of the heavens is part of the wisdom literature that is in our text. This continues on actually into our New Testament text as well in the book of Hebrews. Many of us know this verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, uh, hope, hope for the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Again, contextualizing our understanding of our faith in this particular day and in this particular sense through an understanding of how we fit into this greater, larger, universal world. And so questions about where did God come from? How big is the universe? It's questions that on the surface might seem to be grand, philosophical, metaphysical, esoteric questions that we wrestle with. Um, they might actually be one of the main avenues that our text, our tradition is going to lead us into discovering where meaning and purpose and place come from in the universe. The other reason why I think questions like this are important is because as is this series, our children are asking these questions. And this was actually, uh, Pastor Omer sent me this quote from Justice. Dear God, this was one of his prayers. Dear God, please help me understand you better because I don't get how you were never born and you've always been there. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And I just grabbed this little picture from Facebook. See if I can do, yeah, am I, am I close? <laughs> so Justice, let me tell you, I love your question. I celebrate your question, your curiosity, your wondering, you're trying to put it all together. It shows us and our community that your brain, this beautiful brain that God has given you, is developing and starting to understand more and more. And your curiosity is a gift. Your question is a beautiful gift to all of us. And so, as I mentioned, I may not be able to answer it really, really well because these are big questions. But at the very beginning, I want to acknowledge that the questions itself, these kinds of questions, are rooted in our biblical tradition, in our faith. And we honor every single person that asks these questions. And every question that gets uh, asked deserves an honest, loving, honorable response. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. So there's obviously a lot of different ways to try and get to this kind of question. I'm going to attempt two main avenues of asking or addressing the question, what was there before God? The first avenue is trying to make sense of our physical time-space universe and how does God fit into that. But then there's a second possible avenue that is deeply entrenched in our identity as storied 
people that I think also offers another perspective for us to consider. So let's begin with thinking about sense and trying to make sense of all of this if we can. I don't know if you all remember when you were back in, I don't know, preschool, maybe kindergarten, and you were told to draw some pictures of your house, your home, or your family, or whatever. Uh, there was a very fairly standard way in which we would draw these pictures. And the standard way was through the lens of understanding that we had when we were that particular age. The sky is up, the earth is down. I am somehow in between, and this is the world that I see and understand. This is how I understand my place within the world. Here's another rendition I thought was really cute that I just found online. Some kid's beautiful rendition of what appears to be the sky, and then, of course, the clouds in between. And then, of course, some really awesome-looking sea creatures. Looks like a turtle, a dolphin, maybe a shark in there. Uh, some, and, and, of course, jellyfish and fish and all sorts of different animals. But... The conception of this kind of worldview when we are kindergarten, first grade, preschool, etc., is sky is up, clouds, ground, sea below. This is actually a worldview that you might be surprised to understand is not too far distant from the way our ancients understood this. And there's obviously a lot of diversity and complexity in some of this. But this is a depiction, some artist rendition of the worldview, the, what, what some people would call the cosmological view of how the ancients understood the world. You can see that God is in the heavens above. There's a firmament. If you remember your Genesis story, right, there is a firmament there that covers and keeps those waters above. There's the earth. And then below, if you can see that, it says Sheol, or the, uh, the grave, the underworld. And then below that is even the great deep. And so when we are talking about our Genesis story, we actually have to really do a little bit of work to recognize they didn't have our modern cosmological understanding. They had a very ancient understanding. And so this understanding helps them to understand and see what is their place within the universe. Well, if you were to go on, you have the sky above, earth below, and here I am in between. Once you grow up, maybe, I don't know, second, third, fourth grade, you start to understand a little bit of the world in a different way. It's not just up and down. There's actually some different dimensions that place us within this universe. And here's another artist, beautiful artist rendition of the earth. So there is no more up and down. It's actually out and in or however, whatever other words you want to use for that. And then, of course, there have been some developments throughout our time uh, of our universe and our understanding. Um, the earth is actually the center of the universe and everything else goes around it. Once you start to see the sun and the stars and all of that stuff, then clearly this is the model that we held on to for millennia of how we understand our place within the universe, our cosmos. Uh, when I look to the heavens and when I look to the moon and look to the stars, they are clearly going around the earth until, of course, you have the Copernican Revolution uh, and then Giordano Bruno, uh, Galileo um, comes along and they disrupt this understanding and recognize, actually, that's not how this works. The earth actually revolves around the sun and now we move from an earth-centered universe to a heliocentric universe. And these developments uh, continue on throughout time. Now, hang on, hang on, hang in there. After 
however many hundreds of years, we start to recognize that our place within the universe is looking very, very different from how we understood our place within the universe. And we're all doing science and cosmology to try to make sense of where we are. And then you get to the 20th uh, century here, and you start to see that there's a whole radical new view. This is a picture from Voyager 1, taken, uh, I forget the exact date, uh, taken from way in, out in outer space. And this little dot right there is known and was named by Carl Sagan as the pale blue dot. And he's written very poetically about this place, talking about all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all of our tragedies here on this pale blue dot out in the middle of a solar system that is vastly huge that we can barely comprehend. And then we understand if we push out a little bit further that the solar system of which we are a part of and upending all of our views has shifted even yet again because we're just one small speck of a speck of a solar system in the speck of our galaxy, which is just a speck in the larger grand universe. When I was a kid and I started learning about some of this stuff, uh, I was reading this book, Our Universe by National Geographic Society. It's a really wonderful volume. And in that book, I remember sitting and reading this book and just trying to get my mind wrapped around this, this reality that the earth, this earth that I'm on that seems so huge and so vast to me is actually just a little dot in our universe. And that earth, that dot, is that size in comparison to our sun. And then a couple pages later, they talk about how the sun is really just a dot in a much larger universe as well. This is the famous uh, star uh, Betelgeuse, which is fun to say if you ever want to give a nice little uh, shout out to Betelgeuse and uh, let your kids you know, train your kids, uh, educate your kids on Betelgeuse. It's a great name for a star. And then you can search the internet for things like this and there's plenty of videos that express just how vast and how wide the universe really gets. Comparison to our moon, comparison to our planets. This is, of course, Mercury and then Mars and Venus and Earth. And the size comparisons that just continue on and on and on. And I, watching things, videos like this really just honestly take my breath away. I get really fascinated by all of this stuff and to recognize that where I am, this Earth that I'm living on, it's just so stinking small I mean, in comparison to our sun right there, which is such a small star in comparison to other suns and other stars in the universe and in the galaxy. It's just really astonishing. Well, when you go through all of that and if you get a little geeked out like I do on things like that, you come to a model that looks something like this. Once you start to do all this digging, go all the way back to the very uh, beginning, you realize that at that time, at the very beginning of the universe, all the way up until now, 13.77 billion years later, so much cosmological history has been happening. And one of the things that you learn, one of the basic fundamentals is not only the stars and the planet and the solar system, the galaxies and all this stuff, all the space was created, but time itself was created as well. Time had a beginning at that beginning. And what kind of language do you even use before that? 
Now, I go through all of that, number one, because the biblical writers looked to the heavens to declare how glorious and majestic God is. And it's really fascinating to me that our cosmological endeavors over time have led to an even more expansive, more explosive view of our place within this universe. And it makes that verse in Psalm 8 even more poignant about where we are and who we are. But it also renders questions like this, what was there before God? It gives us a little bit of a conundrum. Because our biblical narrative, how we define God, is the creator of all of that. The very beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of galaxies and stars, quantum fluctuations, all of those things, everything, everything that we observe in the universe, including time itself, was a creation of God. And so when we ask the question, what was there before God? The answer kind of is nothing, but in some ways the answer is kind of nonsensical. How do you even begin to answer the question? And I don't mean nonsense as in you're not making any sense. I'm saying the word nonsense in the very literal sense of the words. Like, how do you even conceive of a time before there was even time? How do you even conceive of a moment before time even began? How do you... What kind of words do you use? And if you study some of the cosmology and all this kind of stuff, it's really fascinating to see that all of us humans are really struggling to figure out what, how, how do we even describe that particular moment. And there's a lot of conclusions that some people make. Some people make the conclusion, well, clearly, therefore, there is no God, or clearly, this is exactly how God made it. The point, again, from Psalm 8 that to me is so beautiful, once you step back and realize our place within the universe, what the biblical writers are drawing us to is a really deep, profound sense of not only our insignificance in the great scheme of the cosmos, but that insignificance is connected deeply to how much this God really loves and really cares. And that question, what was there before God, leads us down that particular path. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings? I mean, I mean in the grand scheme of 13.77 billion years, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you would care for them. So I hope in some ways, clearly, again, confessing my inadequacy, a brief journey, very, very brief journey, in trying to perceive the universe and our place within it. And how does God fit into that entire picture? If we are trying to make sense of the universe, at some particular point, it is my hope that we would make sense not just of where God fits into this universe, but how God's love has been placed within it as well. Because our insignificance in the grand scheme of things leads us to understand how, how in the world, how in the world would a God condescend God's self to love, to be mindful, to care deeply about who we are? And yes, there's a vast universe out there, but this God, as we've been teaching and talking about for 
millennia cares deeply about you, your heart, your soul, your life, your relationships, your health, how you live, and how we are in relationship with each other and with God and with this world and with this creation. And all of that that we have discovered, by the way, comes out of questions like this. What was there before God? So I didn't answer the question. I'm so sorry. I still think that there's a level of nonsense in the sense that we're not quite sure what kind of language to even use. But it leads us back to the wisdom poetry and identifying who we are in this grand, vast universe. But there is that second avenue, which may provide even more brilliant insight into who we are and the place that God has within our lives if we ask what was there before God, because we actually have a story, Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with these opening verses, I'm going to read a translation from Robert Alter that doesn't have the same periods within it. It's taken out some of the periods in the sentences and draws Genesis 1 through 3 kind of as a one one long string of thought rather than broken up thoughts. In Genesis 1, in the Robert Alter translation, it reads, When God began to create heavens, excuse me, when God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth was then welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, Let there be light. Notice this phrase, Walter and Waste. You might have heard formless and empty, um, open void, vast chaos. There's lots of different ways to translate the Hebrew behind that phrase. And then, of course, this phrase, darkness over the deep. We have talked also at Spark before about the Spirit of God or the breath of God hovering over the waters. There is the translation, excuse me, there is an interpretation of this verse that a lot of people use entitled Creatio Ex Nihilo. The basic idea is that this opening passage in Genesis chapter 1 teaches that God created out of nothing. But one of the reasons why I wanted to give you this translation is because a lot of people translate that based upon the opening line and then the consecutive lines. In the beginning, notice the different phraseology there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. That's like the opening line. But the other way to possibly read this without reading the phrase creation out of nothing, is that when God was creating this heaven and the earth, the earth was welter and waste, formless and empty, complete chaos, darkness over the deep. And God's breath was there. And it is into that reality that God said, let there be light. And so instead of reading this verse as creation out of nothing, which many Christians like to use to posit the very beginning. Remember, going all the way back to the beginning of that universe and right there, nothing, and that's how God created. Genesis speaks to that. Another way of reading this passage is to say, there was something there before God created. What was there before God? What was there before God? Chaos. Welter and waste. Wild. Formlessness. Emptiness. A void. Nothing mattered, no purpose, no meaning, no order. Nobody knew their place in the universe. Nobody knew what was up or down. Nobody knew what was right or wrong. Nobody could understand 
anything. In other words, what was there before God? There was chaos. And when God then shows up, you start to see life and order and purpose and meaning. Light come into being. Things being put into their proper place. Another way of possibly conceiving this question is to ask, what was there after God? And the answer that the biblical narrative gives us is that there was life after God. So if we're going to answer or address the question, what was there before God? Through the lens of story, through the lens of theology, through the lens of our biblical narrative, we can answer by saying chaos, selfishness, pride, arrogance, corruption, nothing meaningful, no light, only darkness, formlessness, emptiness. This is what there was before God. And then when God speaks and when humans embrace God's word, this is when the life happens. This is when the seas are put into their place. The land comes into being. Plants are sprouted and they are fruitful. And then a beautiful creation happens. It is this conception and this view of God in the order of creation that led to the development and the promulgation, the pushing forward, the advancement of the Christian movement into the world. And this is not what I'm going to show you here. This is not the talk for today. But this, to me, illustrates so much this point of what was there before God and after God in the story and in the theology of Christian uh, development through the Western world. In his book, Dominion, Tom Holland has written and cataloged all of the different things that emerged out of Christianity. They are the things that didn't exist before. And as a result of this person, Jesus, and Jesus's movement, and the disciples following after this Jesus, who they believe to be God incarnate in the flesh, here is a small list of things that came upon the scene. Compassion, charity, humility, and agnosticism. That might sound a little funny to some, but it was the idea that we can't really know. We can pursue God with all of our hearts, but we can't really know, which has led to geology and science and the discovery of methods that help us to understand God's creation. Human rights, tolerance, the idea of consent between peoples, liberty, orphanages, asylums and hospitals, and many other things. It's incredible. It's just astonishing and incredible what has come as a result of people believing in this Jesus, recognizing the God of this universe over all of this creation. All of these things, compassion, charity, humility, these were new inventions in the course of human events. And they are the very things that many of us to this day are still beneficiaries and champions of. Where did that come from? That all came because we recognized that before there was God, there was chaos. It was only when there was, uh, after, only after God comes, 
does all of this, the absence of love, the absence of uh, purpose, the absence of meaning and life and reason, it's only after God shows up that then there is life. All the things that we value, that we understand to be important and central to our human endeavor, life, family, compassion, justice, humility, purpose, reason, hope, joy, love, these are things that come after God shows up. This is echoed, of course, in our texts. John chapter 1 is the one I think I referred to earlier. In the beginning was the word. There's that phraseology again, referring back to the creation. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All of these things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. That word, that divine word that created order and purpose and meaning in this universe, yeah, that, that was in Jesus. Later on in Colossians chapter 1, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in or by Him, depending upon how you translate that preposition, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through Him and for Him. All of this stuff. So my friends, in the idea of sense and story, in some ways, we can't get our head wrapped around what was there before God at the very beginning of the universe, that God created the universe, and if God is the creator of all things, including time itself. We will struggle and grapple with that language probably for the rest of our existence. And we're going to probably have to settle in some ways with not knowing a really good answer. But we can look to our wisdom literature to see how our ancients understood our place within the universe and how that absence of understanding leads us to awe and reverence and respect. And then second with story, we recognize there was chaos. That's what there was before God. And once God shows up, there's beautiful meaning and purpose. Bob, I want to get, it looks like Bob and Shelley have a question. Question, is Holland's list of inventions that can be attributed to Christianity considering non-Western philosophies and religions. Curious if this has been cross-referenced in history. I can only reference you, thank you for your question, I can only reference you to Holland's work. This has been cited in other authors as well. Uh, Kenneth Scott LaTourette is another uh, church historian as well as a West, uh, um, historian of Western civilization. I know one of the reasons why this issue of Christianity being so central is because for several years, especially in recent years in the uh, post-Enlightenment, 17th, 18th, 19th century, there was a huge movement against the church for a variety of sociological and political reasons. And what Holland, as well as others, have done is they are trying to go back to the history, go back to the original history and say, what really were the influences that shaped and formed Western civilization? So again, I... Um, confess my inadequacy. Um, Bob and Shally, thank you for the question. Um, but yes, I would say in short, much of this has been cross-referenced. Much of this is going back to original sourcing. Much of this is pulling into original citations, um, etc. So I'd like to leave you, my friends, unless anybody else has some additional questions, back with this question again of Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? And the focus here 
for a lot of period of time has been on clearly us. But another way to look at this is to stand in awe of the you that is in this passage. And when we ask the question, what was there before God? And we come to a place maybe of uncertainty, of nonsense, of grappling with language, of trying to put it all together. May that lead us to a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of mystery. May that lead us to a sense of profound astonishment that this God would condescend to love us, to bring us to that loving relationship with the creator of the universe. There's a couple more questions that come through really quickly. I'll do my best because I want to be respectful of time, but also respectful to the questions you guys coming in. Regina, um, so who made God if there was chaos and nonsense before God? Well, <laughs> I hope I've answered your question by not answering it, Regina. Thank you so much for asking. Part of the narrative and the biblical narrative of the story is simply that it states it matter-of-factly, not trying to put any logical response to it. The other idea with the who made God, if there was chaos and nonsense before God, would require some philosophical journey. So the short answer, for those of you who are interested in like the deep philosophy of it, is the general principle is that things need to be created. Things that came into being must have a beginning. But if there does happen to be, have a being, if there is a being that does not have a beginning um, and wasn't created, it does, it's not needed. God, it's, an, it's not necessary to have a beginning or have a creation of God because God just simply is. Eternal, universal, there is no beginning. There is no creation needed. That gets into a deeper philosophical conversation about um, infinite regress. But again, I can just leave it right there. Pastor Mark says, lots of different cultures develop ideas and becomes a form of convergent evolution of ideas, concepts. Eastern cultural institutions may come up with the same or similar ideas as Western institutions with no cross-pollination or connections. Um, yeah, I don't see a question in there, but that's a beautiful avenue to consider because this is part of what Paul uh, recognizes in uh, the book of Romans in his letter. That the creation is a testimony to this God that we declare. In fact, that's the whole point of Paul, one of one of the main strains of Paul's movement into the Hellenistic, into the uh, Western world, into the Greek world. Nicole Dickens uh, says Neil Ferguson also does a good uh, also does a good job of tracing Christianity's impact impact on the rise of Western civilization during the last five hundred years. Uh, fantastic. Yes, I, I haven't yet gotten to Neil Ferguson's books, but thank you for that reference uh, there. Okay, friends, I hope some of that was helpful. Again, there's a lot more to discuss and converse about. But as always, that's what Wednesday night is for. So if you want to sign up for the Wednesday night, when a child asks small group, we'd love to pursue that more. Again, I confess my inadequacy and in doing my best to try to bring us back to the scriptures, bring us back to Jesus, and maybe a couple handholds and lessons that we can take away. I look forward to further conversations where we get to mine all the depths of this deep intellectual metaphysical philosophy and to use that more to understand who we are and how we are to live and be followers of Jesus in this world according to this question. And Justice, thank you for your question. And I hope that some of that was somewhat helpful. And to all of you who asked these brilliant questions, thank you for submitting them. I'd like to draw our attention now to um, communion. 
which is time in our service where we participate in this physical sacrament within the context of this time-space continuum to once again commemorate who Jesus is and was, and to recognize that even in this celebration, we are confessing and proclaiming once again the chaos that was before and the love and the life and the light that came as a result of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for us. And what was there before? There's corruption and greed and pride and militarism and the Roman Empire oppressing people. And this Jesus came to set the captives free, to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to those who are blind. So this is the Jesus that we celebrate every time we take communion together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To all of you, my friends, all of you are welcome at this table as Junior leads us in one more song.